Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz. And I'm Al. First up, I'll be speaking to the actor Stephen Mangan. And later, we'll be asking, what makes a great summer song? How have they changed? And what is, or was, the sound of the heatwave? So, Grizz is back from getting married. Mm -hmm. Back to reality. How was it? It was great. It was wonderful. It poured with rain on the Friday and the Sunday, and Saturday was blue sky and blissful. So we were very lucky. Uh, however, I was pretty gutted to, um, on my honeymoon, miss the interview you did while I was away. So you should be. I mean, an interview with Stephen Mangan is better than a honeymoon in, um, in <laughs> Italy. <laughs> no, Stephen Mangan, he's a personal hero <laughs> of mine. <laughs> More than a hero? <laughs> Al, you tell me, why did you want to interview him? Well, I think he's a brilliant actor. He's most famously a comic actor, but I'm not certain that he likes being pigeonholed as just that. Listeners will have seen him in things like Green Wing, playing uh, Bertie Wooster on stage with Matthew McFadden, um, who will be appearing later in the series. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a brilliant raconteur and a very, very talented person. And he has his a new comedy out at the moment called Hang Ups, which is on Channel 4, in which we see him playing an online psychotherapist. <laughs> he does Skype sessions. Yes, and he's he's not the best psychotherapist in the world, but he's, um, it's very funny, and it has an amazing cast of people like Charles Dance playing his father and uh, Richard E. Grant playing his therapist, and it's all improvised and has a very sort of freewheeling, um, hectic, very funny vibe about it. Yeah, and the the way it's shot is quite interesting. So you see from the point of view of the the person receiving therapy over Skype or from um, his son's iPhone, exactly. from it's, a baby monitor. Yeah, it's the idea that so much of our lives now are dominated by staring at screens that almost everything in those early episodes, I believe it becomes less so later on, is shot from, as you say, the point of view of some kind of screen, which makes a quite sort of frenetic, mm. a kind of frenetic style but it's interesting and weird and funny. Let's listen to the interview. Stephen, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. So, Hang Ups, this is your new sitcom. It Written, is. improvised, yep. produced. Yep. Not quite directed by you, but directed by your brother-in-law. Directed by my brother-in-law. Yeah, very much not directed by me. I couldn't direct. Have you never directed? I've never directed, and I've got no ambition to direct. It's a skill that I know I don't have. So I can put that to bed, which is great because I think I can do almost everything else. (laughs) It's really annoying. How do you know you have no skills? It's not my... That's a really interesting question. I think it's because, as an actor, I am good at 
throwing out lots of ideas. We could do it like this, we could do it like this, how about this, what about that? I don't always know which is the right one to go with. That's what I need the director for. And also, I think directing yourself as an actor, I'm not sure many people can do it. I think you need that external eye saying, I noticed hints of this in what you just did, why don't we expand on that? Or have you thought about something you haven't thought about? And I can't think of things that I haven't thought about. Are you an actor that gives notes to other actors on stage? No, I I mean, it depends on the actor. I mean, I just did a play in the West End and I was working the with party. the birthday party with actors like Toby Jones and Zoe Wanamaker, who are very up for me saying or, or them saying to me quietly in a corridor. I just noticed that in that bit, you have started to do this, which I think is doing that to your performance. And they were always free to go, well, I don't agree with you or thank you very much, that's very helpful. And I was always keen for them to say those things to me. Not all actors like to work like that. A lot, a lot of actors most will be actors like... Most actors hate it, don't Well, they? I mean, not most, but I think, yeah, a lot. A lot of actors will say, that's not your job, that's the director's job. You have to tread very, very carefully if you are an actor giving other actors notes. So, the show... You play Dr. Richard Pitt. He's actually not a doctor. I think that's got into some that's got into material. Some press that I've read. Yes, yeah. and he's not a doctor, but he is called Richard Pitt. You've created this character. You've improvised it. He's a therapist. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that you've never been to therapy yourself? I've had a minimal amount of therapy. Enough uh, to know how to play a therapist? Well, uh, no. I mean, I did sit down. I did do some reading around therapy. I spoke to a couple of therapists at great length. I suppose there's two ways you can go with a comedy about a therapist two broad routes one is he's an absolutely appalling therapist and all the jokes are about how bad he is at being a therapist yeah, but is he i mean i've seen a couple of episodes and yeah bafta you said that he's not complete he's not implausibly no terrible. no i think like all of you know he has good days and bad days some days he's able to divorce his what's happening in his personal life with what's happening in his private life and as this is a comedy i'm very interested in people being on stage and people being off stage how we put on a front when we are doing our jobs. This is why Noises Off is one of my favourite plays. That's all about what the audience is supposed to be seeing and actually then what's going on backstage and how that impinges on what's happening front of stage. And I think that's it's, it's hilarious in all sorts of sitcoms. Faulty Towers, Basil is supposed to be this hotel owner and behave in a certain way, but when things get fraught, he can't. You know, that's a lovely area to, to explore. I can't remember what I was talking about now. Oh, yeah, therapy. So I spoke to I spoke to a, a, a few therapists, and actually, once we'd written all the characters, uh, Robert Delamere and I, who directed, also co-wrote this with me, once we'd written all the characters, I sat down with the therapist, and I explained who all these people were and what their issues were, and I asked her how she, as a therapist, would approach them in therapy. So that formed the basis of our jumping-off points. for. But our, aren't the characters quite fluid insofar as you know, you're improvising. Yep. So how much writing could you do for someone like Richard E. Grant's character who plays your amazing therapist? Mm. Um, how do you, how much is that written before and how much uh, did, did Richard come up with himself? It, it depends on, on, on the actor you're working with. I mean, we sat down, Robert and I, we wrote, we spent months. I mean, it took us weeks and weeks to write a script for the entire series, which was a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of what happened because we have 40 
two main characters or something ridiculous in this sitcom. And an incredible cast, of just to name a few. Charles Dance, Celia Imrie, Jessica Hines, Catherine Parkinson, David Tennant. Yeah. I mean, it goes on. That's just the tip of the iceberg. It is ridiculous. So we, we, had, we, we wrote a, a scene-by-scene breakdown. What happened to every character? With that many characters, you can't just leave it to the day and see what they come up with in the improv. You need to know where the story's going. Because you're also shooting it out of sequence. We're not shooting episode one, episode two, episode three, episode four. Charles Dance came in for one morning and shot all his six episodes in one morning. Richard E. Grant did the same. So we need to know where the story's going in a very you know intricate way. I mean, the show's divided up. I give therapy to clients. So David Tennant, for example, we gave him the choice of three characters. We wrote three different characters. So which one do you like? Goodness, uh, does everyone get a choice? No, of three? not everyone. He chose character B. Right. Character C was the one we liked the most. <laughs> so we gave that to Ian Hart, right. who appears in episode <laughs> six doing character C. And then once we talked to David, Robert would talk to the actors beforehand, give them a kind of breakdown of what, he thought the character was and what their issue was but if they were phoning up for therapy for the first time or sorry skyping or facetiming for therapy for the first time we would basically sit down and just do a session and they would explain to me what their issue was and i would try and therapize them into a better place while trying to be funny at the same time how much of richard pitt is stephen mangan yeah it's an interesting one when you improvise because obviously you are reacting totally in the moment yeah, I mean, you have, have no excuse think. if it's not you do you <laughs> I mean you wrote it you came up with the guy well this is the problem this is the main the problem with writing and producing and starring in something is that you have nowhere to hide <laughs> normally if something doesn't work you can go yeah well the script wasn't great <laughs> or I don't think the producer did their job very well I unfortunately am all over this I'm certainly not the only creative behind it Robert co-wrote it and directed it and my wife produced it who also happens to be Robert's sister so it's a very... Who also uh, happens to be an actor. Why isn't also, she in it? Well, we felt that she needed to produce, and uh, I'm sure she will be at some point. In the in the next series? Well, hopefully in the next series, you know, hopefully we'll do another 40 series. Right. <laughs> uh, so I can't remember again. what I've forgotten what we were talking about. Well, then let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, what I was asking, actually, about whether you were... How much, how close you are to... Oh, yeah, Richard to Richard Pitt. I don't know. Um, a bit. I mean, he doesn't have a different voice to me. <laughs> he looks a lot like me. <laughs> uh, I can, like him, get overwhelmed if there's too much going on. I'm not very good when I walk into rooms full of lo- lots of people. My brain sort of shy? scrambles. It's not that it's shy. It's just I don't quite know how to cope with... I find it overwhelming. Partly because I can never remember people's names. <laughs> I'm not one of those people who can meet someone eight years ago and rem- you know once and remember their name. So I find it difficult. And Richard Pitt is a man who is overwhelmed by all that's going on in his life. He's starting this new practice, this new therapy, online therapy company. He's got a wife whom he loves very much. On a side note, we wanted to avoid the sort of sitcom staple of the hapless husband and the eye-rolling yeah. wife you know that some mothers do have them or uh, you know it's a very it's a staple of uh, 40 towers 40 towers there's so many and we thought we wanted them to have a great relationship a great sex life to like each other but she works abroad a lot and she's incredibly busy so we, we, we loaded their relationship with problems from that angle Richard's got two teenage kids who he doesn't know how to communicate with. He's got a, a very bad man who, whom he owes a lot of money to. 
Uh, he's got all sorts of clients. And, you know, as the series goes on, we load more and more issues onto him. So you are presently acting, writing, producing, looking after three young children, running your own production company. You've played Goldberg in Birthday Party this year. Your CV is amazing. Do you ever sort of take stock, look at yourself and think, yep, I've made it? I don't think you ever feel, yep, I've made it, because there's always more to do. And you really, I mean, it's a cliche, but you're only as good as your last thing. And every job you get scares the pants off you because, well, it should do anyway, if you're choosing the right work. Because you shouldn't know at the beginning whether you can do it or not. I think if you choose a job going, yeah, I know how to do that. I'll just do that and I'll be fine. I think it's not a job worth doing. Was that true of the birthday party? Oh, I mean, I had, I was terrified. Firstly, I didn't understand the play. No, I've never understood it. I mean, what was he thinking? It doesn't make any sense at all. I'd never done Pinter before. I've never been asked to play a genuinely frightening person. I mean, annoying people, yes, I play plenty of those. <laughs> Funny people, sensitive, whatever, but not genuinely a uh, terrifying. Maybe it's unleashed something inside you. Well, I loved That's it. A new departure. I did love it. It was a great, absolute joy. I still don't understand the play. Do you like? Do you find you get pigeonholed a little bit as a, as a comic actor? Yeah, of course. Do you find you that do. annoying? Yeah, of course, I find it annoying. I think you. Isn't it great to be a comic actor? It is. Of course, it is. I mean, I. I mean, first of all, there's a whole thing about status in the business. Ken Branner has said that he he's very good at comedy, and he could have done a lot more comedy. He deliberately avoided it because there's no status in it. But status among whom? Like the RSC or...? Oh, just among the business. You look at the Oscars, the BAFTAs. But comic acting is much more difficult, isn't it? I mean, you can stand on stage and deliver your leer soliloquy to silence and you won't know whether everyone is crying or asleep. But if you <laughs> well, don't get you, a laugh playing you, you Bertie do, Worcester, then you do know. You do know if you've got an audience and they're listening or they're bored. You do know. But the awards, the kudos... The recognition goes to dramatic performances, overwhelmingly. I don't think that's even debatable. And wrongly. Well, sometimes, yeah, because I think comedy is difficult because you have to do, it's a bit like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. You have to do all that the dramatic actors are doing. You have to create a character and be believable, but you have to do it being funny as well. Do you have ambitions to play Macbeth? No, I don't have ambitions to play that part. I think it's not really for me, but... I think this division between comedy and drama is ridiculous. It is totally ludicrous. If you take a script to the BBC or to ITV or to Channel 4, you have to take it either to the drama department or to the comedy department. Now, the best stuff has elements of both. Hamlet's a very funny play. Why Most we of are, the rest of his comedies aren't. <laughs> why, why we uh, delineate in this way astounds me. I mean, I don't see myself as a comic actor, although I know that a lot of the stuff I do is comedy, I see myself as an actor. I think the one thing that worries me about comedy, being brutally frank as well, is you don't see many actors, comedy, in quotes, actors in their 60s and 70s doing huge amounts of work. Someone like Bill Nye, who's very funny, tends to do a lot more drama. Right. Uh, and maybe it's because people think it's something undignified about old people but being maybe funny. Also, but maybe also being funny is actually too difficult and that most most TV comedies aren't very funny, maybe. Well, that's for you to say. I don't know. I mean, I do know that comedy produces a, a very visceral, subjective reaction in people. If people find you funny, they sort of love you and they feel that you can be their friend because you share a sense of humour 
and there's a great warmth towards you. Conversely, if people don't find you funny, which is also fair enough, I didn't find Tommy Cooper funny, for example. <laughs> if people don't find you funny, they sort of get angry about it and it makes them... They, they can't understand why other people find you funny, why other people laugh at you. And it sort of produces this vicious reaction that's really bizarre. Talking about love, I think I should say at this point that my co-host, Grizz, turned down the opportunity to interview you because, to quote her, she loves you too much. <laughs> <laughs> but she's, is she getting married as we speak? Yes, but I think... She doesn't uh, love me that much then, does she? Well... Come on. I think she... Grizz, I look think at you, take a long, hard look at yourself in the mirror. Well, maybe the wedding wouldn't have gone ahead. Does he look exactly like me? He's, he's not nearly as handsome. <laughs> Can we go back a little bit? When you were 13, yeah. you did something that strikes me as unfathomable. Really? You sent yourself to boarding school. Yes. Oh, God, I did. Yeah, that's Why right. Why would anyone do that? I think I thought it was going to be like an Enid Blyton novel or something. You know, we'd be climbing out of the dormitory in the middle of the night and scrumping for hours. I don't know what I thought was going to happen. I think it was going to give me freedom. I was at home. I was the eldest. I was the only boy in the house. Irish parents. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, at that time, being a boy had its advantages. If my sisters wanted anything, they would get me to ask for it because I knew they had a higher percentage of getting a yes from my parents. So maybe I thought this would be a laugh. How and wrong was I was. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it. I hated it so much for the first year or two years. I hated it. But I couldn't tell my parents because it was, had been my idea. And they didn't want my, you know, mum cried for a month when I left. So I sort of and let her down by going. And I didn't want to then turn around and go, I'm having a miserable time. The double kick in the double teeth. Double kick in the teeth. So I just dealt with it on my own. And I had a horrible time. And then once I got to sort of 15 or so, I actually had a great time, really enjoyed it, but there's no way on earth I'd send my kids to a boarding school. Did it help being funny there? I think eventually, yes. I was very small for my age when I went, and I was quite, I know this is hard to believe, quite cocky. <laughs> I can't um, I know you can't imagine that. And I think, and I also wouldn't let things go, which means you're perfect fodder for people to wind up, because I just wouldn't back down, but I wasn't big enough to physically look after myself. I wasn't tasty. Sounds like a, <laughs> sounds like a disastrous it was combination. A it was a disastrous combination. And, you're, you know, at the, and boarding schools, the problem with them is you're in a... It's like being on Big Brother or something. There's no escape. You never... If you have a problem with another kid, they're sleeping four stalls down from you in this ridiculous dormitory with 40 children in it. You'd never get time off. You never get to go home and punch the wall. You're monitored the whole time by everybody else. So... That's not healthy. Is it a cliche or is, is there some truth in the idea that comedy is fueled by anger and wanting to punch the wall? And I don't think... Grief, maybe. I genuinely think there's a difference between the stand-up mindset and the actor mindset. I think it's two completely different ways of looking at the world. And I would say... Oh. Well, I think one of the things that appeals to me in acting is that it's a team sport. You're out there with a lot of other people. You rely on each other. You need each other. And it's a laugh to do something with someone else. I think stand-up is a complete opposite mentality. And the language you you know, they go up, they, they kill, they murder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, uh, they, you know, they destroyed the room. There's a different way of thinking about the world. So I don't know if you can generalise that. It's all more stable, rage. you'd say. I wouldn't say they're more <laughs> stable. Absolutely not. I just think... I just think they enjoy the team sport aspect of it. Why have you never moved to Hollywood? Because.
because it's a really weird place. Um, Good weird or bad weird. Tams and Greg called it death by encouragement. Everyone tells you you're going to be huge. Everyone tells you you're going to be, you know, the next massive thing. But there's a sort of emptiness to the place, partly because of the way it's geographically structured. It's very hard. You know, someone said to me once, New York is like a river. You just step out into the street and you carry along by the city and the energy of it. And, you know, you just swept along. Whereas L.A. is like a lake and you literally have to paddle yourself anywhere to get anywhere. So I, I just didn't trust it, I think. And I think if I'm being honest as well, I don't think I'm good looking enough to thrive over there. My big Grizz face. Wouldn't, Grizz wouldn't say that. Uh, well, Grizz isn't here, so uh, I'm not sure she exists. Um, I think, you know, you look at comedies, especially in the 90s and 2000s when I was just starting out. Everyone is gorgeous. I'm not gorgeous. I'm quite a weird looking guy. I can't I think, see it weird in what way. I can't see it at all. <laughs> so I just, I didn't, I just didn't want to, I suppose, expose myself to that level of scrutiny. A lot of interviews that you've done, you talk about your fear of dying. Right. Does that maybe that makes you makes you want to be in a hurry? Yeah, it's not a fear of dying. It's just an awareness that it's going to happen. Is that a healthy? Awareness? Yeah, I think it is. So you live more immediately. It is for me. I know for some people. That denial that it's going to happen is the best way forward. <laughs> I mean, people don't run around going, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I'm actually, I'm actually going to die. But I... But they should. Well, no. I mean, you do what you need to do to get you through. But for me, I had, a, had a, a few experiences of death quite early on in life. And it made me realise it's not going to last forever. I'm already five years older than my mum was when she died. I'm already three years older than my grandmother was when she died. So... I'm just aware that it's going to end. There's that medieval analogy of life, of a bird flying through the darkness. It's silent. There's no absolute pitch black. And the bird enters the window of a great hall. And there's noise and there's people and there's sounds and there's all sorts of stuff going on. And the bird keeps on flying and then flies out the other window at the other end back into the darkness again. Being in that great hall is being alive. And that's a pretty good way of looking at it. At some point, you're going to fly out the other window and it's all going to end. It's like, it's like being a kid in the summer holidays. When you knew you had a week left, it just, it just made it slightly, dis slightly <laughs> distressing. And also you thought, okay, well, today I, t at least today I'm not at school. I experience that every Sunday night. <laughs> so at least <laughs> today... For the next five minutes. I'm at least today we're not dead. And also, what about all those millions of people who've already lived? They'd love to be alive. And we are. So we've got one up on them. We, no, but we're, we're doing what they... We're living the dream. Oh, well, I thought we were going to end on that downbeat death note, but that sounds... That's a bit jollier, isn't it? Yeah. We're living the alive dream. We're living the, unquestionably, you are living the dream. Um, can you give our listeners the Stephen Mangan basic philosophy of life? <laughs> OK, this is it. Nine words. We're going to end on this, so it should be good. This is how I live my life, or try to. I try every day. I don't always succeed. Nine word philosophy. Be on time, work hard, don't be a dick. How's it going? Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> Stephen, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Al, I'm actually still in a state of shock about how outrageous it is to tell Stephen Manga that I'm in love with him. <laughs> And he, he thinks I might not exist. I mean, 
<laughs> well, he will know now. Like I've taken a step backwards <laughs> in my life. <laughs> Given how strongly you feel about Stephen, I thought it was just important that we had a sense of your presence um, <laughs> in the room while Stephen and I were talking. And I think Stephen and I achieved I that. I think you did achieve that. And just for the record, Tom is much more handsome than Stephen Mangan. Even more handsome. <laughs> so next we're going to be talking about the song of the summer or what songs of the summer of past years have sounded like. Yes, this is my favourite topic. Um, and <laughs> Special topic. You'll be hearing from the expert, me, and also India Ross, who writes about popular culture, and David Cheel, who is the editor of The Life of a Song book and column. David, India, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, David, what makes a summer hit? Oh, I think it has to have a sense of fun. When I was growing up, it used to have to sound good on a transistor radio because, you know, you'd be outside in the park with, you know, I Can See Clearly Now by Johnny Nash, and that would sound great on a tranny. But also I think it has to have a sense of freedom. Summer songs are about sort of letting go of maybe the normal sort of values and social norms that you might have. It's holiday. It's, it's kind of holiday romance kind of thing. Would you agree with that, India? I'd agree with that. I, I was thinking about this and I came up with sort of two criteria that qualify a song as a potential song of the summer candidate. And I think the first one is it has to be ubiquitous. It has to be everywhere, coming out of cars, windows, shops, in the club, on the street. It has to be totally inescapable. But I was thinking also that the kind of bigness of the song itself is not enough. It also has to have this kind of indefinable summerishness, like it has to evoke summer in some way, like it has to have some kind of like warmth to it. I think if it satisfies both those things, it's the candidate. For but surely the first hit. one is just, that's the end result. I mean, it's just popular. Sure, but I mean, it has to be pervasive. It has to be so memorable and so associated with the summer that every time you think back to that year, you're like, that song was everywhere. Like Cotton Eye Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and you're thinking that far back. That's exactly the reference <laughs> I had in mind now, yes. <laughs> so do you guys think that there's some kind of formula then? If you, if I was a cynical music producer, could I just create a summer song with those ingredients? Yes, and the evidence is one of the selections I have, which is a Justin Bieber song called No Brainer. This time last year, we sat in this studio and we discussed summer songs. And we discussed a song called I'm the One. Which a great was, song. Which kept, still. A great song, <laughs> still great, by DJ Khaled, Justin Bieber, Quavo Huncho and Chance the Rapper. And as a sort of testament to the pop music industrial complex, those four people have made one year later what is essentially exactly the same song with slightly different lyrics, a slightly different melody, but it is otherwise indistinguishable and it's also a banger. Should we have a listen? You stick out of the crowd, baby, it's a no-brainer. It ain't the hard to choose. Him or me, be for real, baby, it's a no-brainer. You got your mind on loose. Go hard and watch the sunrise. One night, it change your whole life. Pop top, drop top, baby, it's a no-brainer. Put him up if you with me, yeah. Okay, so that was Justin Bieber, DJ Khaled, Chance the Rapper, and Quavo. <laughs> Um, you can't. Did I do that right? Um, did that do it for you, Grizz? I don't think that that song is as good as I'm the One. What? I think it's a grower. It's only been out two weeks, Griselda. Give, okay. it, give it another couple okay, of weeks. Okay, I'll listen for the rest of the summer and then I'll come back to you. <laughs> yes. Am I the only one who gets a bit irritated by the auto-tuned vocals? 
Auto-tune is a groundbreaking innovation, David. <laughs> <laughs> it's given us so much. Uh, I don't know. I just, I just think of those YouTube goat versions of Justin Bieber songs. <laughs> <you know. laughs> That's I think, yeah, auto-tune, you either love it or hate it. And I mm. quite like the sound of it, but maybe we're conditioned to like I think it's that a think I'm conditioned to fake hate sound. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it. I think it's an instrument and it can be used well or badly. Okay, but Chris, does that fulfil your criteria for a summer song? I think it does. I think it's fun. It's kind of light. I mean, it's called No Brainer. It has, it's, not, it's not that serious a song. <laughs> so what, what it has a lightness. What is the difference between a summer song and Well, this is actually a question song. I want to put to everyone, which is that is a summer song happier and lighter and in a way more lightweight than songs that you might release in like So, so the normal February. heavyweight stuff that Beebs puts out <laughs> for the rest of the year. He's, he's ditched that it's and he's just doing herb, this is just fluff this time. <laughs> I think some summer songs have a sense of sadness about them as well, mm. about the sort of transitory nature of summer and of, you know, sort of relationships you might have or encounters you might have during the summer or, you know, the, the whole thing. I mean, even now, outside the building, the light is changing and, you know, you can sense that the summer's beginning to come to an end. There's mm. that sort of slight hint of autumn. And I think a good summer song will have that sense of things happening, but also things coming to an end. They're transitory. Like a holiday romance. Yeah. That actually leads quite nicely onto my song, <laughs> Lana awesome. Del Rey, who I love deeply. And this is Summertime Sadness from 2012. quite indulgent melancholic minor mm. key it's the sense that summer isn't just a happy time that actually this kind of expanse of time particularly if you're a teenager or a student where you've just got these weeks stretching out ahead of you and mm. they've got so much promise and yet perhaps you won't fall in love or perhaps mm. things won't work out and it won't be as fun as you want it to be there's something like desperately melancholic about Lana Del Rey everything she does I can't really put my finger on it but it's kind of it's tragic almost really tragic <laughs> I mean yeah. I don't want to put, put a spanner in the works completely but there is obviously one song that was certainly the song of the first half of the summer um, it's indisputable certainly in, in England which was Three Lions um, by David Bedell <laughs> and yes. Frank Skinner. And if you're talking about songs being ubiquitous and catchy, you know what, I mean, that was, yeah, I mean, that's... It was everywhere. I haven't yeah. heard it much since we got knocked yeah, out. Yeah, no, it, it's <laughs> plays of Three Lions drops off it did, immediately. It did. But it, I mean, it was number one, wasn't it? Like, was it? Yeah. I think did so. it go back to number one? Yeah, yeah. And, and the other <laughs> version, the, the even uh, worse version went to sort of number seven or something. Um, anyway, moving on. Apart from Three Lions, India, <laughs> what's your song of the summer? My reluctant second choice to Three Lions is, um, well, the interesting thing about this summer is the song of the summer was kind of decided in April, which was when this really prodigious rapper called Cardi B, who's been one of the most talked about new artists of the, the past year, came out with a debut album called Invasion of Privacy. And this single, I Like It, which is a Latin trap song which features two reggaeton artists, J Balvin and Bad Bunny. It samples this Boogaloo song from the 60s by Pete Rodriguez called I Like It Like That, that I think a lot of people know. And it put this kind of trap spin on it and it is just a slice of Latin joy. So that was Cardi B, Bad Bunny and J Balvin. I think it's interesting that the song of last summer as well, Despacito, they both have this strong like Spanish element and Latin element. 
yeah, it's really interesting how it's been like infused that way. I think it's just part of the sort of globalization of pop. And I think it's also interesting to compare No Brainer to the Cardi B song in the sense that they're both pretty complex productions. But Justin Bieber is the sort of horribly manufactured end result of that. Whereas the Cardi B song is such a like subtle and like clever use of influences and contemporary production that's produced this like amazing fusion of styles it uses the pete rodriguez sample really cleverly doesn't it yeah the whole thing it sounds more summary to me than than the bieber thing you could just feel people out in the street well you want to dance to it yeah Yeah, exactly yeah yeah. Yeah. it's the sound of the summer but it transcends that because it also feels like cardi b is quite the sound of now in that she's like this very different kind of female rapper we've we haven't at least in my memory really had someone like her who's so unapologetic and so kind of unleashed yeah she is who she is and people sort of love her for it the ultimate sort of contemporary contemporary star this kind of like rags to riches story started out as a as a stripper and was then a sort of instagram star and just turned turned herself to rapping and turned out she had this amazing Amazing gift for it. So looking, thinking back to kind of summers of mm. the past, what, what for you is the soundtrack? Well, often there weren't necessarily summer songs, but there were songs that came out during the summer. So I just associate... I mean, I've, I've got a memory, a more recent memory, not growing up, but of going on holiday with my children when they were younger and we were driving around Spain and I took one cassette playing the car and it was Moby's play album. Whenever I play that now, it's that... It has that sense of sadness for summer, like I was saying earlier, but that to me just just conjures up summer. So often it's just the music you're listening to at the time, but that to me conjures up, you know, summer Spain, the mm. dry heat, you mm. know, the, the the scrubby landscape. So, so it can be quite associative in a way. It yeah, doesn't exactly, have to be a, the, exactly. the, the pop star doesn't have to be singing about it being summer. Not necessarily, no. Mm. Um, Do you think the character of the summer song has evolved in the past? 40, 50 years? I was going to say it's probably less, uh, probably a bit more s- subtle now, although maybe the Justin Bieber is, 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 is <laughs> an exception. I don't know subtle. what you mean. I mean, I mean, one of my choices is called In the Summertime, and it's just sort of, you know, it's made as a, you know, a summer song, and it's just about having fun during the summer, and they're more, more dance-oriented, um, more dance-floor-oriented. And less outside, maybe. I, I prefer like, yeah. the sort of 60s summer vibe. Well, I feel was... nostalgic about something which I was never even there. Shall we listen to it in the summertime? In the summertime, when the weather is high, you can stretch right up and touch the sky. When the weather's fine, you got women, you got women on your mind. Have a drink, have a drive, go out and see what you can find. If a daddy's rich, take her out for a meal. That was Mongo Jerry in the summertime. I find it almost like impossibly sweet and kind of innocent. I find it mm. slightly unbearable. <laughs> no, I, I, lo- I actually love it. I think it's kind of charming, but I mean, it feels so different to the stuff we've just been listening to. Well, it's mostly innocent, except we'll get onto the bit about drinking and driving. And, and, <laughs> but even that seems, a, you know. Well, it was, it was an, a sort of innocent time. Yeah, have a drink, have a drive, you know, <laughs> let's go just go and day, have some fun. I've got memories of, of listening to that on a, on a school coach trip and the whole coach was just going (laughs) and it was at a time when boys certainly didn't dance so all you could do is just like you know sing along or or chant along to the song and make the noises so (laughs) i was thinking actually like related to this kind of nostalgia for like summer music past i was thinking about the idea of summer music as a kind of collective experience and this sort of Mm. this sort of narrative that in the past you would have gone to a record shop and bought like a physical record and then people would have been listening to it i don't know 
around the campfire listening to Joni Mitchell or whatever mm. people did mm. back then. And, the, and, the, and this narrative that like now in the like streaming era, people have very kind of individualized solitary musical journeys and that you have Spotify on your phone and you, you download a song and, mm. and uh, you can download any song in the world, listen to it by yourself. And I think I think this is a really like false narrative. And I think music is almost more collective now since music and the internet have kind of coincided. And I was thinking actually about another song that I was going to bring up, which is a Drake song. Uh, Drake put out an album this summer. And the day the album came out, I went into a shop and the album had been out for like three hours and I'd streamed it and listened to it like a bunch of times because I love Drake. And I like <laughs> went into this... But I, of course, I, this comes up a lot. And I went into this shop and the, this kid behind the till was playing the album out of his phone. He like looks at me and, and we had this like moment of recognition. I was thinking, is that like a cool thing that like even though we're having this like solitary experience of like music in the summer, I think this kind of like moment of summer songs is kind mm. of bigger now for the kind of globalization of the like streaming era well because it's got a lot to do with social media and right like that song went viral because yeah. shiggy this like insta influencer <laughs> did a dance to it and then right. everyone it, you know it became like a challenge like can you do yeah they're like in my feelings challenge. yeah do you um, think it's significant too that a lot of the videos to these songs have their street party videos their people totally. outside and it's hot and it's night time and they're having a drink it's as if they're sort of like harking back to a time when music was truly collective the, in that the, way, the, in like yeah. a physical sense. Mm. It's, yeah, I think, I think it's really, really interesting. Should we have a listen to it in my feelings? Yeah. And I need you, and I'm down for you always, KB. Do you love me? Are you riding? Say you never ever leave from beside me, because I want you. And I need you, and I'm down for you always. Al, have you made your dance to it and posted it yet? <laughs> I haven't seen it in the compilations the on YouTube, in, I have to it's say. It's a work in progress. Yeah. <laughs> but that is one of the reasons why they get these massive streaming numbers, right? In the days when you went out and you had to physically buy the record, being the summer song was something completely different. Now, if a lot of people are streaming it because they want to make a viral video of it, yeah. the music has a different meaning. It's something like Drake has like very consciously tried to exploit, I think. I think he literally makes songs in the hope that they will become memes. I think I think that he's like very aware of that as a marketing technique. Do you think there's something more cynical? I mean, there's something quite cynical about that, David. I mean, there's always been an element of cynicism in in the sort of construction of summer hits since ever. Do you think when Mungo it. Jerry put that song together, they were like, "We're going to go to number one in the summer with this one. We're going to get rich. <laughs> we're going to get rubbing well, their hands together." I, I, well, I, I think he, he said it took him about ten minutes to write. He was working in a in a watch factory at the time, I think. So having having written it, he was able to give up his his day job, and and the guy who wrote it, Ray Dorset, has more or less enjoyed living on the proceeds ever, ever, ever since. I, I, can I just add about that? The drink-drive thing seemed very innocent at the time, but some years later, the song was used as the soundtrack to an anti-drink-drive TV advertising campaign oh, wow. as a sort of counterpoint. So on, on the soundtrack, you've got that song going, and then you've got you know people drinking, and then the road crash. So it was brilliant, a brilliant piece of mm, wow. you know public information. I think there like, is something more cynical now about the summer song. I'd, I feel like the 60s, there was a sort of a chill summer vibe that 
Organic. You weren't even there. Image of some beautiful hippies of hanging about in a field. A revisionist history. And making love, and it sort of there was this different rather than everyone wandering around with earphones in, and something like "Me and Bobby McGee" by Janis Joplin. You know, that seems to me to be a perfect summer song. That I don't even know if it was made in summer, or even if it's set in the summer, but. It has a sort of element of sadness about it. That sorry, um, Chris has put on her ear. No, no, let's no, keep no, going. No. <laughs> um, well, let's listen. Good enough for me and my Bobby everything isn't it i mean it's got you can feel the sun you know the car mm. the soft top car the romance that, that won't last janice's joplin's beautiful sort of husky voice it's pure summer the hammond organ sort of yeah and it's, it's coming away in the background romantic and beautiful no i just can't see what the memes would be of that <laughs> <laughs> But there's something about a road trip as well. Yeah, you know, driving that. in the summer song. Like, yeah, and, and it has to end, the freedom of that. So it seems like we're saying that summer songs aren't necessarily just fluff. They're light and they're infused with melancholy in some ways, but they're not like silly season cinema, which is just superhero films. Is that right, India? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly... Uh, there's a market to be exploited for trashy summer hits as DJ Khaled well knows but I don't think it's necessarily a season of exclusively terrible music. One example that I wanted to sort of raise is that amid all of this kind of summeriness Kanye West put out this really amazing project where he went out to Wyoming amid a storm of controversy about some pretty terrible things that he's he's been saying publicly but he went out to Wyoming and he basically produced five albums that were released on five consecutive weeks, one of which was his own album. And it was this really quite extraordinarily creative endeavour. So I wanted to play a song off his album, which is called Yay, and the song's called Ghost Town. And it's just it's just an example of, like, we've talked about contemporary production and all the things we can do with auto-tune and, like, all these tools we have available. And it's an example of what you can do with that if you do it right. Sunday. I just can't listen to that without thinking of Kanye wearing a MAGA baseball cap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the irony is uh, it's not lost. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the trend these days towards multi-team -produ production songs is that you get a whole army of songwriters. I, mean, I think I looked at that song and it's got something like 16 songwriters which is an astonishing number yeah. but it doesn't sound like it no a lot of songs that have been constructed in that way sound constructed they yep. sound like they've come off a conveyor belt but that sounds it's really emotional it's true and it's soulful yeah i mean what you have essentially is kanye is, is like the creative director of the kanye project mm. and he's just corralling a huge number of people into what is essentially his vision well on that happy note <laughs> <laughs> thanks david thanks india thank you for having us Thank you.
that's it for this week. You can read pieces by David and India at ft.com. Hang Ups, starring Stephen Mangan, is on Channel 4 on Wednesdays at 10pm and you can catch up on all four. Let us know what you think of the podcast. You can find us on Facebook or email us at everythingelse at ft.com. And if you are not already an FT subscriber and you would like to be, visit ft.com slash offer for our latest subscription offers. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Grizzanel. And our music is composed by Fatima.